are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Dhruvi Shah, Executive Trustee and CEO of Access Bank Foundation. Good afternoon, Dhruvi. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Thank you. Let's get started with the questions. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, perhaps your upbringing, education? So I lead Access Bank Foundation. I'm based in Bombay and I'm a migrant here. So I've been in Bombay for many years now. I came here for work. I was with uh, Ibn Amro for 18 years. And after that, I joined Access for about six years. I'm a commerce graduate. And during the banking, I got the opportunity to move to the not-for-profit side. I think it's a nice thing that happened because it's not only helped me grow professionally, I think even as a person, it's been a wonderful journey for me. And I feel lucky that I found something that I enjoy doing and something that I also believe in very strongly. That's a lovely introduction, Ruby. And it segues into my next question because it is about the fact that you've been in the social sector space for some time now. As you mentioned, you didn't get here by design. It was not through planning. It was by accident that you got into this area. And uh, you've clearly enjoyed your journey so far in this area. But when you joined, was there a big shift from how one works in mainstream to working in the social sector? It was definitely not by design or even by accident. I honestly didn't plan as much. And, you know, in those days, like 20, 25 years ago, you studied something and you did something. It kind of you know, very well aligned. Yeah. And I was lucky to have transversed into something very different than whatever I ever intended to do. So when I look back, it feels like a very natural progression for me. I was part of the banking system. We've kind of made these silos, but to be very honest, they're just in the design of operating. Else you are still trying to solve a problem, right? And uh, again, being part of a bank, you get to see many facets of the economy. And through banking, I got the chance to work on microfinance. And that kind of brought me closer to the grassroots, so as to speak. I was traveling, I went to the hinterlands of the country. There was many different kinds of challenges that you saw. And all of us were trying to solve this problem from the bank side, from the NGOs trying to solve the problem. And we were at a very good intersection where we could see how the businesses was trying to operate in this space. And what is the role that NGOs were playing as frontline organizations who knew the community so well. And I think it's this explorations and the curiosity that kind of helped me take a decision to move away from what could have been like a mainstream banking career and work more closely with the social sector. We used to call it the development sector, to be very honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's how the journey has been. It's neither accident nor design. It's been honestly a very natural progression. I never felt 
oh, I let go of something and I keep hearing this, you know, we let go sort of sacrifice. No, it was a very natural progression, just kind of aligned to probably how I was as a person. And I feel quite proud about it. That's such a wonderful response because you're saying at the end of the day, it is aligned to your personal values. So you found it easy. You didn't find like it was a sacrifice, but also the insight that at the end of the day, you're still trying to solve a problem and find solutions to some of the biggest challenges around inclusion. So what is the focus of the Access Bank Foundation? I read on your website that your core theme is sustainable livelihoods. Could you elaborate on that? So the foundation was set up in 2006. And as any new foundation, we also dabbled in a few things. We did education. We did a few other things. And probably as a bank, also our travels, conversation with people in the sector. As a bank, we felt we understood livelihoods better. Also, we wanted to do something wherein you can have some form of transfer to the community. And not exit, exit per se, but there is a clear demarcation between what you transfer to the community and then you fit into the next kind of a role. So that's how we started getting into livelihoods and rural livelihoods because the challenges were much more than an urban livelihood. Even today, working in an urban landscape is very, very different. So that's how we started the programs on livelihood. We call it sustainable livelihood so that there is a bit of a focus on what we really believed in at that point of time. So livelihood is what we do. We've been doing that since now 2010. So, I mean, what does livelihood mean in a rural community or let's say for a rural household? Large part of our communities have small parcels of land, what we call as small and marginal farmers. And there are people who are landless. They typically depend on what they grow in one season, which means right after the rains. And rest of the year, they do farm labor, they migrate to cities for work. Our attempt is to try and find income from the assets that they have by enhancing the scope of what they can do in the village. So the asset that they have is land. So try and see how much of income they can earn from the farm and farm allied activities. So typically what you need is water, water for irrigation. So work on the water resource development wherein farmers have enough irrigation to take the second crop and maybe the third crop. Create alternates, which means, let's say, livestock could be micro enterprises so that they have a second or a third source of income. I mean, this is what we call creating a basket of livelihood. What happens gradually is that two or three sources of income get developed. The farmer has cash income, which allows him to migrate for lesser months than before, allows him to migrate out of choice than distress migration. Farmers or families who do not have land find it a little more difficult. So the focus there becomes creating livestock as a major source of income. They always have some small parcel of land. So try and see if they can do vegetable cultivation. They can set up micro enterprises around the rural value chains. Credit is a very important part of enhancing any kind of livelihoods. And there are many programs available. So try and link them to some sort of credit, form collectives like self-help groups, farmer producer groups, so on and so forth. It takes about three to four years to be able to confidently say that the incomes have now stabilized and will continue for a long period of time. So that's what we call as sustainable livelihoods. I think the challenge around subsistence farming is that they just depend on that and one thing goes wrong if there's no rain or there is too much rain, there can be a problem. Today, a lot of the foundations 
are no longer just grant-making bodies, Dhruvi, like they were earlier, like you do. They also implement their projects. This is obviously a strategic decision. So what is the foundation's operating model? Do you also work with NGOs or do you try to do everything yourself? So we work with the NGOs. We very early on realized there is a set of organizations who know the local grassroots issues very, very well. They also know the cultural context in which communities live. And I think that's a very, very important part of knowing how to solve a problem with them because it's not a mechanical process. Mm. It's a process which a lot of trust building is required. And until you know the community and in the context in which they live, you cannot really help them solve the problem. Right? It's very easy to go and solve a problem with somebody. But sustainability comes in when people take more ownership. So we found that the NGOs are skilled to do that. So we work with NGOs. Do we work simply on grant making? No, we don't just cut a check to an NGO to say, okay, do what you do. When we started the livelihood program, we did a lot of research, conversation, moved around in the communities, in the villages. And we've co-created this program. It's the same program that we implement across the geography that we do. It evolves over a period of time. Every few years, we get together with our partners. We look at the newer challenges that are emerging and then kind of design the next step. Our money is used more like a catalytic fund. There are many funds which are available for the community. There are several government programs, like I said. There is credit which is available. We don't want to replace any of it. We actually can't, right? Grant money is very tiny in the whole scheme of things. So let's use our money as a catalytic fund to bring all of these things that are designed for the community available for the community. So a lot of access, capacity building, joining the dots, um, collectives, all of that kind of work is facilitated through our grant. Back of the envelope calculations for every rupee that we spend, we are able to leverage anywhere between five to seven rupees for the community. And that is what kind of triggers largest change than what just our grant money could have done. So that's how the operating model is. That sounds incredible for every rupee five to seven is like brilliant. Have your priorities on how you operate or what do you consider your key focus areas changed uh, in a post-COVID world? Essentially, you know, to be able to best respond to immediate needs, but also considering the changing needs. The world has drastically changed in the last two years. So no, our priority remained livelihood and will remain livelihood and became very evident in COVID that creating sustaining incomes especially in the rural area, is even more important than before. It gives families certain sort of stability, right? Yet there were changes. There were some things which became very apparent, which may not have kind of been so important. So a couple of things. One, we really found health as, I mean, something that one should now focus on, right? It was there always, but it just gave us an opportunity as a larger number of stakeholders to acknowledge that, yes, health needs support. Youth in the village, that's a segment that, we don't typically focus on, right? And these are the youth who are educated or they are youth who are not interested in everyday kind of farming. They want to do something different. And they are people who typically migrate short term, long term. And they also want to try and see if something in the rural India is possible. So that's a segment we kind of want to focus on. So I think 
the focus on livelihood remains what kind of emerged as newer priorities will seamlessly fit into the design at some point of time and we've started kind of focusing on these things any design takes time it takes time to gather yeah. resources it takes time to design a program but it did open our eyes to newer challenges which are to be kind of looked at post covid it also gave us time to think through things Yeah, I know. Yeah. Sort of breathe yeah. in and then think through. How do you measure success? Sustainability is a very important part for it. You don't want to be there endlessly. You want to bring something to a stage where communities can take it forward themselves. Yeah. So, do you have some way of measuring success? And also, because I hear this a lot from Pradhan and other organizations that there is pressure from grant makers to actually. report on success every quarter probably so you know sustainability is not a destination it's a very ideal uh, space to be it's not a destination it's the journey so success is not about what you will achieve in 4 years 5 years because it takes time to change make any kind of change you're working with people you're working with human beings you're working with families so one of the critical thing we like to focus on is the process part of it if your processes are working today you will get certain sort of desired outcomes but if you just wait for something to happen with assumptions in 3 4 years there is going to be a lot of unpredictability and ruralized are very the conditions in which you operate are very unpredictable so focus on the processes and what are these processes that i'm talking about So it's getting the right ingredients in place. It's getting the community involved at every stage. This slows things down, right? If I take a very simple and a basic example, if I go to a farmer and tell him I'm going to dig a well for you, he's not going to say no, right? So no. okay, come on, dig dig a well. I mean, whatever I do, lose. But if you want to get the whole community together for them to decide who needs that well, where should the well be? How will you do the water sharing? who will own the decision making this process is a longer process but yeah. it's a more sustainable process because you have the chance of having that well in the right place by right place i mean where the water will be you yeah. have scope of helping more farmers and families because there is water sharing now yeah. these are processes which will give you a certain outcome but these are processes that take time so for us measuring what will work what will sustain comes through assessing the processes which the organizations follow and that's why we partner with a certain kind of organization it's a continuous exercise it's not something you measure at 3 years or 4 years you do do assessments and all of that but it's something that you do on an ongoing basis through engagement with our partners with the communities sometimes by simply listening to the communities and most importantly be agile i think that's very very important to be we also have to understand that the area in which we operate is a very high risk area so as much as there are successes there are failures and i guess the agility thing is very important and also the regular and ongoing conversations as you mentioned i think there is a lot of merit in it because you don't want to discover two years down the line that some things were not right and you did not course correct at that stage you've come like so far along and now you're having to rethink the whole thing Sometimes yeah. it's important to let the community go through their learning curves. Like anybody who is trying to learn, gain confidence and trust, it's important that they are allowed to make certain mistakes. You may know it will not work, 
They have traditional knowledges. It's okay to sometimes let it run its course and be there with the community as they are learning in a new journey, which is very unknown to them. So we have to be mindful of these aspects as well. Yeah, yeah. Step back, support them. Let, let them be on a journey. Let them have their conflicts. Let them find a solution. They know how to deal with conflicts when they will happen later. So it's important to allow a learning journey for the communities you're working with. Yeah, that is definitely more sustainable rather than trying to superimpose something from the top. What, according to you, are the biggest challenges facing the social sector in India today? There are many. Oh, there are many. Yeah, so... I think post-COVID also and post-changes in how the funding is going to happen. I think the sector has always evolved if we kind of look at last 50 years or 70 years of it. But these are too many changes happening at the same time. It is sort of unprecedented and transformation is not easy. With this change of nature of funding, and that's going to remain like that for a long period of time, organizations are required to change at an operating level. And this is not without heartaches, right? So all of us are going through that and any sector goes through that. And I'm hoping something more stable or better may emerge out of it. Again, it will all depend on how we as practitioners kind of shape it up in the future, right? So the onus equally lies on all of us. The other challenges and these are going to become bigger is that any organization, you're working with organization and institutions, there is a need to build them as organizations. So there are very limited opportunities for NGOs to build on to their corpus, which allows them to grow as an organization. And it becomes very difficult for NGOs to operate without any kind of equity. So yeah. that's a challenge. There are opportunities because there's a lot of philanthropic funding now coming in other than corporate CSR. Yeah. And that's an opportunity which wasn't there so much in the past. But now it depends on are you able to capitalize on this new source of funding to build organizations? Are you willing to kind of walk halfway to do what is required? But the opportunity does kind of exist. HR continues to honestly be a challenge in the sector. And like all the organization post-COVID, yeah. there was a lot of oppression in the sector as well. Again, a lot is linked to how local you are. The sector also lacks pay parity. The salaries in the sector don't match up to any other sector. So I think that's something which should change, allowing an equal opportunity for people to make a choice of working in the social sector. Yeah, to make it aspirational. The image that is there that if you're working in the social sector, you will be impoverished because the sector does not <laughs> want to be a good paymaster. So yeah, people have to then make a choice depending on the life that they want to lead. As much as they'd like to be there, they cannot be there. Dhruvi, coming to something personal, as a CEO of the Access Bank Foundation, what keeps you awake at night? I sleep very well. Ah, that's brilliant. <laughs> a clear heart and soul. We see challenges every day, but it should also bother you, right? So I'm not saying there are things that bother me immensely, but I've reached a level where I can sleep with those challenges with me. I feel this disproportionate focus on scale. NGOs are not designed for scale. They are not supposed to solve the problem, the entire problem, right? They're designed to find a solution in many challenges that are there Mm -hmm. and help other people 
the government, the businesses, community themselves to solve this problem. So this disproportionate focus on scale, sustainability, just with the NGO is not the solution. So I think this bothers me a lot because a lot of our conversation, you're not able to scale up. I'm not designed to scale up, right? Yeah. You know, there's this inherent conflict that I see. It also takes away from the responsibility from people who are supposed to solve the problem at scale. Also the grant, like I said, the sector works in challenges that have not been solved, the challenges that happen every day. So there's a very high risk of success and failure there. And I think with the ask of positive outcomes alone and many other sort of funding that is trying to come, we're trying to change this inherent nature of risk funding, right? CSR grants are the highest risk-taking fund and that is what is allowing NGOs to walk that path of finding difficult challenges to solve. I think that shouldn't change. It'll again kind of push things behind if you don't take up those challenges. And we are very, very silent on the role of failures in finding successes. A lot of what we see as success also comes after a lot of experimenting, piloting, and there are a lot of failures. Only out of failures, you know, this will work, this will not work. So two things happens. One, you're creating a perception of everything that happens has to succeed. Second, you're not sharing failures for others to learn and make the same mistake. And if you keep making the same mistake, you're also kind of wasting time and money. So I think it's very important to have conversations around failure. I really love conversations around failure. It's not like in our nature, in our culture to talk about failure. It's a difficult thing to do. I think we are just starting to do it. And speaking to Rachita Bora a couple of episodes back from IDR, and she mentioned that they have something... I think the failure files, they've just launched that. And she said there's so much reluctance. Yeah, because you are judged on it, right? I mean, that's what I'm saying. This inherent nature of perception of an NGO or civil society or the sector, they work in a high-risk area. They are supposed to take risk. Higher risk means higher chances of failure. The math is very simple, but we just don't want to believe that there will be failure. So which is what is motivating, promoting people to look at the low-hanging fruits. Not that they don't work, they still work, but they don't talk about it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I'm spilling all the beans. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you see the foundation in five years' time? So like I said, we've been doing rural livelihoods since 2010, giving us like 12 years. Now we realize we have learned something, we have information, knowledge that we can use for the larger sector. And who else willing to listen? I think at an operating level where we are, there are two or three challenges, not challenges, I would say, opportunities where we need to kind of invest further. One is on the community's participation in the markets. They are now able to produce more than subsistence. So they are going to engage and interact with the market. So how do you build their capacity to have informed engagement with the market? And on the other side, concerns around ecological sustainability, degradation, so look at the other side and see how do you get there, but more participation around conservation. So that's kind of two spectrums of the value chain. Now, this is more on the operating side. So we are at this nice cusp of market and the society. And how do we get the communities or the society to demand more from the market? And how do we influence the market to be profitable at the bottom of the pyramid? That's very well said. And we are the last question. If you had a magic wand to change things, 
what are the three things you would change yeah so i guess magic wand is this mystical thing right honestly one problem that i feel we can solve is eliminate hunger i mean if we could just do it not that every other problem is going to get solved but it just gives you a lot of peace of mind i mean there are many problems right but yeah. i think this problem if you are able to done away with it and honestly have more kindness and patience so let people have more kindness in them and be more patient than what we are seeing and i think we'll have peace with these three things <laughs> yeah quite huge asks i mean in 2022 it is like tragic to see children people struggling to feed themselves and their families and it's tough and to be very honest it's not just rural communities is urban poverty on the rise and covid has pushed a lot of things very differently than what we imagine and see on a day to day basis so if i had my magic wand i think i would do these three things oh you're talking about india and urban poverty in the uk also during school holidays people are worried that you know kids will go hungry because they don't have school meals and they can't afford food at home so it is an overall tragedy we really need that magic wand drovi thank you so much for your time it's been such a learning and uplifting conversation to hear straight from your experiences i haven't heard a lot of the insights that you were able to give today so it's been really brilliant thank you so much Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms: iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.